Welcome to episode 3.5 after the episode. I am here with our producer, Christiana Kimmick. Hello. And we are here to talk about Pat Denbo's amazing and hysterical interview. She's probably one of the funniest people we've interviewed so far. Nothing against our other guests. Because <laughs> they're wonderful too, but she's hilarious. Oh, she was so funny. It was so funny. And we would be – I would be – talking about something serious and then start cracking up about the next thing she said. <laughs> I was trying to keep it together. And meanwhile, I have to be quiet <laughs> yeah. while I'm making sure you guys are sounding amazing. I know. I saw you in the corner just losing it. I had to actually bite my hand at one point. <laughs> like I had my hand over my mouth and I was like, don't laugh. And I, you know, you have to like pinch yourself. Oh yeah. Oh, I was yeah. like, like and you're I, 10 in the backseat of your parents' car and they're telling you to be quiet. Yeah. 100%. That yeah. is exactly how I felt. I, was, I remember I was like stifling my giggles yeah, too. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Now <laughs> she was hysterical. What struck you from the episode? Gosh, where do I – what do I pick? You know, it's so funny. As we've been going through these interviews, sitting here and listening to Pat's interview, the thing that actually struck me was I realized I used to think that recovery was – I guess almost like a finish line goal. Mm. So specifically what I mean by that is it's like a goal that's achieved and then like you've gotten it, like a medal, you know, uh. like, like okay, like someone, you know, is seeking after recovery, they're interested, what are, you know, they go through whatever they need to go through. The closest example I can compare it to is, is like almost like a marathon or like a half marathon where it's a lot of work, there's a lot that goes into it, but you attain that goal. You have that medal, so to speak. And you get to live with it. Yay, you've got your recovery. Right, you attained right. your recovery. I didn't realize to the degree that recovery is actually – it's a lifestyle. Yeah, it's really interesting. I totally forget what it other people who don't have the disease of alcoholism are thinking about us. You know, I, I don't have that perspective, so it's really helpful to hear. And I've heard you, you know, mention this a little bit before, and it was so interesting to me that – that probably leads to the frustration around why you had it. You had recovery. You finished the marathon. You did it. You got the medal. What's going on? Why are you? Why do you keep throwing the medal away, or why do you keep stopping? Right. right. And like I, I'm someone who has a lot of empathy. So if someone's struggling or going through something, then I can look at them and be like, Wow, gosh, they're they're really struggling with something. I just didn't realize the reason why, and. I'm so protective, you know, of my work and the, the people that I work around. And I just have such a high honor for people that live a life of recovery now, especially just knowing and watching the amount of work and just the grit and determination. I mean, it is just absolutely unbelievable. I don't agree with the stigma that's out there. I'm part of the crew that's working to end the stigma. But it's interesting though because you're – but what you're saying is so important to ending it or, or mm -hmm. helping with it because it gives us perspective on us being apparently suddenly representing every alcoholic. <laughs> um, it gives us perspective on what you're seeing and what the picture is from the outside. And I think that's really helpful for us to understand that people are seeing this as – an achievement, and then you move on from there. Mm -hmm. And if that's how they see it, then their perceptions around it make complete sense, mm -hmm. right? Like the judgments in the context of that, you got it, now move on. Right. It makes complete sense why there's stigma. Right. And so I think that's really a brave and important point. What I want to know is what are some of the things that 
you know, more specifically and as they relate to Pat's episode that you thought about addiction and about recovery that has been so helpful for you to see through people sharing their stories? So I think number one, coming – this is a generality, right? But realizing that addiction is in fact a disease. Right. It is clinically a disease. But so let's talk about that for a second. When, you know, the American Society of Addiction Medicine – talks about this as a brain disease. So it is it is medically been characterized as a brain disease. I'm not mm-hmm. just saying that. Yep. When you heard that before, what was the thought versus now understanding and seeing it up close? You know, I actually didn't have a thought about it before. Okay. Had you heard the term alcoholism as a disease? Yes, 100%. I did. And I wondered how it was a disease, okay. Okay, but yeah. I actually never questioned it. I just thought, oh, okay, interesting. It just was something I didn't have enough knowledge about, so I thought I can't really come to a conclusion about right. this because so, I don't understand. So one thing about that, just everybody who's listening, a disease is chronic, fatal, and progressive. Mm-hmm. Those are so it meets criteria. The same criteria as diabetes. Yes, exactly. When I first started in the industry and I was given that example, that's whenever it really clicked for me. Yeah. I thought, oh my gosh, this is literally something that has to be managed for the rest of your life. It's not something that you can get rid of. Right. You know, it, it's no no amount of work or meetings or therapy, therapy <laughs> or groups or speaking from personal experience, <laughs> peer support, whatever, yeah. you know, suboxone for people that are being treated with yeah. that, you know, which is whole, we're not even going to get into that. No, today. we're not touching that. <laughs> That's for the another rabbit pool. trail. Yeah. Maybe for another day. Okay. So I think it would be good to talk about some of your judgments Okay, because it's like literally, okay. So you had some of these judgments, the diabetes, comparison really helped. It honestly, the diabetes comparison really helped me. And when they told me alcoholism, that I had a brain disease and that's why this happened, I had a hard time. So to be honest with you, I was like confused about how that worked. I think a lot of that is the self-imposed shame and the feeling that like, oh, this is just a problem of discipline, which I know a lot of people, that is the perception, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, did you have thoughts about how is something that you pick up to ingest yourself a disease? Absolutely. So my grandfather was an alcoholic on my dad's side, and he was also just a very angry drunk. I, I never, thank goodness, had to see him in that yeah. fashion, in that manner. But I, you know, I had heard stories, and so I thought for some reason growing up that uh, because of the stories that I'd heard and the reasons why we didn't have alcohol in our house was because of that. And I thought that there was some sort of correlation between anger and drinking. So, for that's instance, interesting. right? I mean, that you, makes if sense. If you pick up a bottle, it then that fuels. Anger. That's right. Or and or I thought at some point, you know, maybe you're angry, and so that means you're an alcoholic. I had no knowledge about it. Yeah. All I'd heard were stories. Right. And then my parents had really protected me from that right. that aspect of it. Right. And so – You knew it was, was bad. You knew yeah, it was bad. Like you had the really negative – Yeah. I mean that makes sense uh, why they would and say then, that. And then I thought, I thought, you know, after that, whenever I would, you know, encounter people who either were extremely heavy drinkers or when I'd hear the term alcoholic, I did think, gosh, like I wonder what makes them not be able to put it down. And I think one of the biggest things that I – struggled with before I really started learning about it in this industry was how can someone not stop whenever they have their whole family in front of them, whenever they have this life? Right. Don't they see Right. Why Why doesn't the logic work? Right. I feel that way too. One of the pieces of 
of having this very interesting brain disease is you have discipline and the ability to be logical in every other area or most other areas of your life. And then when it comes to this one area, you're you're a total mess and you can't make decisions. Self-will is not a thing when it comes to this. And you know, the question people people often will say like, oh, well, I can stop drinking for a month or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And the question is, can you stay stopped? Like a lot of people can stop. They can quit every hour, you know, they can quit right. every week. But can you, once you start, can you stop and can you stay stopped? Those are, you know, big questions that we often pose to people trying to get sober or trying to figure out, hey, is this a problem? So what did you hear in Pat's story? I know we we mentioned that. Like, what did you hear in Pat's story that kind of brought that up for you in terms of, oh, yeah, this isn't just an achievement and then move on from there? So in her story, I remember her mentioning about how, you know, she'd gone through recovery. She'd gone through a recovery program. I think she was living in a sober yeah, house. Yeah, sober living. Mm-hmm, sober living house. Uh, she moved to California, got a job at Gold Albertsons. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she said at some point she started drinking again. Right. But she was hiding it. She was drinking. She drank an energy drink that had alcohol in it Ah, while she was in sober living, but she told herself that it didn't count. Because it was an energy drink. Because it was an energy drink. And so that was – that's what she was drinking. Okay. Exactly. And that – is the story like that is so that's you know alcoholic thinking i once went i was sober and it was a, this was a relapse i had i went to las vegas a uh, long story but the point of that story is that the relapse i decided that if i had a margarita it didn't count because it was mixed drink and oh. therefore the alcohol did not count this is a true story <laughs> Wait, this is a, a mixed so Be, yeah, because there were other things mixed into it, <laughs> I told myself it was not, and it was from I don't remember what it's called or even if it's still there, but it was across a street uh, near Mandalay Bay, and there's this like big Mexican restaurant, mm-hmm. and they give you these margaritas, and the margaritas not only have a lot of alcohol, but they're enormous. Are they're these like the ones that are like yes. the size of your torso that yes. people are walking around with in Vegas. So not only did I decide that it didn't count, but it was like an enormous drink. <laughs> the and size of your yeah, body. Yeah, it's size of my body. And that fueled like a whole relapse in Las Vegas when I was 18. So if anyone has about. not been to Las Vegas <laughs> and watched this phenomenon happen, what we're talking about is a not just like a margarita glass, but the margarita glass that is when it's I like say the size of your tall. torso, it, yeah. like a hundred percent is yeah. the size at least of an yeah. adult torso, like a tall yeah. man torso. It's got to be like four margaritas it, in one. I almost passed out just looking in one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that didn't end well, but um, <gasps> but it was the same idea, right? With the sparks, like it doesn't in our brain. You know, we have a disease that tells us we don't have a disease. Mm-hmm. We have a built-in forgetter, mm-hmm. and that you know all these sayings that we have, they they come from this place of like, we are going to, you know, we have a piece of our brain that is not in a logical place. Mm -hmm. And so that's what she was doing. And then, you know, and then she talked about the next drink she had was a beer and how she wanted to keep the sober life. She wanted to keep everything that went along with it, but she wanted to drink. Right. And I thought that that was so interesting. And I would love to hear more about that from you because there's this just split right there from what she had said, where I wanted to continue drinking, 
but I didn't want to give up what I'd found in recovery. So she mentioned friends. She'd mentioned, you know, obviously work. That's mm-hmm. really important. And then, you know, just her community that she had found. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? So when someone gets sober and they're in that place of desperation, which she obviously was when she arrived at that sober living house, they typically have lost all those things. They've lost community. They've lost self-respect. They've lost kindness in their life, any sense of like doing anything other than using. Like your life gets so small and black and white. So – She got all these things in the sober home, you know, this community, you know, the job. You start to put the pieces back together because you're sober. And so you're doing the work that comes along with it, and it is work. And then she starts to drink, and she doesn't want to give up that community, those friends, those feelings around being a part of, you know, doing activities together, work, all the things that she got back Mm -hmm. from recovery – But that desire to drink is so strong that that our minds, there's a place in our minds that convinces us that this is different, this doesn't count, I can do both, I can drink and be in this recovery home, you know? I mean, again, we're talking about removing logic. And it's so funny. I have this conversation with my mom. Sorry, mom where she'll ask me questions or we'll, we'll have a conversation about it's, – it's not usually about me and it has to do with alcoholism and she'll start applying logic to the, their behaviors. Mm. I always say, mom, you're applying logic in a situation where there is no logic, right? Mm. Well, why would they throw all that away? Why would they – you know, this is my mother. She went through this with me. She, you know, her wow. husband owns, <laughs> works in recovery. Her daughter works – like wow. how could she possibly think that? But it's that – we're normalized to feel that way and to seek the logic. I mean, I do seek the logic in a situation. And so we come back to that place of why this doesn't make sense. And you're right. Like whatever, whoever you are saying this doesn't make sense. Yep. You're right. It doesn't make sense. It makes sense in the context of this is what alcoholics do. They drink. And it is abnormal for an alcoholic not to drink, which is the whole reason why sobriety and recovery are unique and amazing, because it is an abnormal behavior for someone with alcoholism. So she was trying to participate in both that recovery life by staying connected, because remember we talked about alcoholism and addiction is the opposite of connection. So she's trying to stay connected while at the same time, alcoholism is trying to isolate her. And the first way that alcoholism in a relapse tries to isolate you is by giving you a big old secret. And secrets keep you sick. And that was something that told to me in the beginning of my recovery. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I love secrets, right? It's so fun to have a secret or like to know something or even sometimes just to you know, just, I don't know, there's something about it, like having your secret life or whatever. That was something that was so appealing to me. And the reality is the secrets are what eat you from the inside. They erode your your soul, your conscience. And so that's exactly what happened with her is that she created, her alcoholism created this secret while in the midst of this recovery and slowly pulled her out of that community. 
Does that make sense? It makes sense. Can you go a little bit into you talk about the drive for alcohol? I think this is important, especially for people who don't either work in the industry or come from a family history of alcoholism who are not alcoholics. What does that drive feel like? Because when you say a drive for something, I think of like a craving like, oh, I crave chocolate. Oh, today I really want some chocolate. Okay. No, that's a really – that's a really good point. Okay. So a little brain science. Alcoholism affects the part of the brain that controls our autonomic functions, the reptilian brain. So things like sleep, sex, breathing, things you you have to do, right? Mm-hmm. Survival things. Right. So it gets into that part of your brain, okay? That's an important thing to, to recognize. And it feels like you're holding your breath and the bottle is a tall glass of oxygen, and you're running out of oxygen, so you're going to drown or suffocate or, you know, lose consciousness. And you can't breathe. And you're not supposed to drink that. And what everyone is telling you is that that bottle is actually going to kill you. That bottle of oxygen is the thing that's going to kill you. And they're telling you, you're not going to die from holding your breath. We promise. Your life's going to get good. But it All you know is that you're holding your breath, and if you hold your breath, you're going to die because that's what your brain is telling you. Wow. So that's the drive, right? The drive is this, you know, another good example I like to use when I'm doing interventions is that it's the same thing as, you know, how if you put your hand on a hot stove, your hand recoils, right? Mm -hmm. It automatically, it's an automatic reaction to being burned. Right. So... This is as if we're supposed to hold our hand to a hot stove and you don't want us to pull our hand back. It's automatic. It's that it's it affects that piece of you that tells you that this is for survival. Mm. So it feels like you're going to die without it. Mm. And that sounds really crazy because of course that doesn't make sense and of course we know that doesn't make sense. But when you I mean Think about if you're, you know, holding your breath underwater and you're trying to, you trying to, you know, your friends are counting or whatever. Maybe we are the only people who do that in my house. Um, <laughs> uh, no, we do that. No, my, my husband always does. Like, Why do I play along? Okay, fine, I'll count. <laughs> so, you know, and and you, it, the urge, that urge gets so strong and you feel like you're going to die if you don't come up wow. above the water. That's what it feels like. And then, woohoo, once you continue on with that process, you feel terrible detoxing and all these things. So a big part of it is trusting people around you. Well, first of all, being really, really sick and tired of being sick and tired and trusting people around you when they say, hey, if you hold your breath and you stay holding your breath, I know it's going to be really uncomfortable. I know it's going to feel like you're going to die, but you're not going to die. And the feeling of suffocating will stop. And there's going to be this beautiful life over here. I know you've never experienced that. I know you don't know what I'm talking about. But trust me and follow me and look at my life and see that I did this and this will work out. And so you're going based on, you know, the faith, literally, the belief that you can have what this group of happy, smiling, joyous, free, sober people have. But the reality is you feel like you're suffocating. Wow. That is so powerful because that is not what is the general belief out there. 
So I just not is, like a chocolate craving. It's a hundred percent different. No, from I got, that. no I, it's, there, it's really I, not. I do not need to survive. I do not need chocolate to survive. Right. That is not the level of craving. It might <laughs> feel like that every once in a while. Right, right. <laughs> not even while. to that degree, yeah. though. But I think that's so important. And I think that's why I was just talking with my husband about this, how he thought it was really neat that the both of us are doing these after the episodes. Because I think part of just completely breaking the stigma, just getting this stigma crap out of the way is having real conversations like this and being able to talk face to face and have people understand really truly what someone with alcoholism is dealing with. Yeah. And that it is not just a matter of, oh, you just completely lost, you know, the the will and the desire to, you know, whatever. You know, it's not this willy-nilly yeah. thing. It is literally, like you were saying, a disease of the brain, which I'm sure is, I mean, just like you were saying, is completely terrifying to sit there and like process and and understand. Well, you're sort of happy because you're like, yes, I have a legitimate thing and I'm not crazy and (laughs) it's recognized. And then you're like, oh no, I have a brain disease. That's not good. It's chronic, fatal, and progressive. Maybe I should be concerned. You know, so it's definitely like the phases of grief of some sort, you know, acceptance, whatever. And But as far as things that I've had to come to terms with, it's pretty low on the list. But uh, you... I think it's really cool that that you have these perspectives that that I don't have in terms of how do we break stigma if I don't know what's being thought, you right. know? Like if we don't have the conversation around like how does this feel? What does it feel like? And you know, one thing I think is really important to say is that not all alcoholics are good people. And just because they get sober, that doesn't make them good people. So, you know, yes, maybe they've achieved sobriety, but maybe they were a dirtbag before sobriety and they're going to be a dirtbag after. So there is, I think there's this idea that anyone who gets sober, we are saying, oh, you're great. You're a good person. No, I mean, there are some people who straight up, they're just not super wonderful people and it doesn't matter whether they drink or not or use or not. That's just who they are. And then there are other people, which I think are hopefully a a large majority, that these substances change them into someone that they don't want to be and you remove them and yes, they still have the, the disease, but they are underneath that all really amazing human beings. And, you know, the thing about um, the you know the, I want to mention this other piece, which is which Pat talked about, which was under all of that usage that she was doing, all the drinking that she was doing, and if we're going with this analogy around holding our breath, you know that on the other side of that, somewhere in you at least knows that on the other side of that, you're going to have to talk about trauma. You're going to have to talk about the trauma. Like, so it's not just, so it's not just like staring down the barrel of putting down this bottle of oxygen, holding your breath, moving through that, believing you're not going to pass out, you know, detoxing, feeling horrible. But you know that on the other side of oblivion, if you're intoxication, is that trauma you haven't talked about that's waiting for you. Right. So it's also that. It's also the the feeling like you take all the anesthesia away mm. and you wake up in pain. Yeah. And then you have to, de- you know, so then it's like, well, I didn't know how to deal with this before. Why is it going to be di- any different afterward? And that's where getting help comes in and, and just support groups, therapy, 
you know, sponsorship, whatever community, community, community is so vital because you have to have some support after or you, you A, will go back and or you'll just be incredibly miserable because the alcoholism is a symptom of the problem. I hate that we call it alcoholism and addiction. <laughs> I refer to it that way, but I hate right. that we call it alcoholism because once you take away the alcohol, we still have alcoholism and it has nothing to do with alcohol. Mm. You know, there, there's this like – It's pointing know, to something else. Right. It's something – alcohol is the – you know, or substance is the, you know, the anesthesia, but it's not the – it becomes the problem. I always say that, you know, it becomes the problem. But it's actually pointing towards something else. So you have this, you have this ism, right? This alcoholism mm-hmm. that is helping you to very temporarily numb the pain. But then you also have, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you also have this looming thing in the distance that just feels heavy, and you know that if you take that aspect away, that's going to have to now be dealt with. And it's like that. I know if there's something that I'm anxious about or, you know, I know I have to deal with and it's coming. You're like, you know it's coming, but you're like, eh, maybe I can procrastinate a yeah. little bit longer yeah. and yeah. not have to face it. Is yeah. that what that's feeling like too? Yeah. I mean, so I didn't have – Pat talked about, you know, violent sexual trauma um, in eighth grade. And what was so fascinating to me was that we started the interview and she was like, oh, I have a really – I had a really normal life. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland and everybody was really normal and I didn't have any trauma or big things happen to me, right? And then later in the conversation, she talks about violent sexual trauma at the age of whatever it is, she 13. 12. Yeah, 12 or 13. Yeah, 12. And that's the kind of stuff that just blows my mind because – the narratives that we tell ourselves are like, oh, yeah, everything was normal and there was no trauma. And I think people make a lot of decisions around what trauma is in terms, you know, even PTSD. Oh, well, I haven't been to war. You know, oh, this, you know, this can't be traumatic. It was just my mom yelling or I could give lots of examples. But basically trauma is the way that something is experienced. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do or I shouldn't say nothing. It has less to do with the event and more to do with how it's experienced. And I know um, dealing with my own sexual trauma, what came out and what shocked me was that my trauma happened after the event. My trauma happened with how it was dealt with when I finally came out with it. Mm. I was in third grade and I came out with it and the way that it was dealt with was terrible. And that was the trauma for me. And so I spent my whole life thinking that a situation was supposed to be traumatic that wasn't, and that a situation that wasn't supposed to be traumatic was. Mm. It's this misconception around what trauma is. And depending on where you hide, you know, how deeply you've hidden that trauma or that whatever it is that's under there, whatever pain you have under there. It it doesn't really matter what it is. It matters how it was experienced. Yes, that is going to be terrifying to think about dealing with or talk about when the fog clears. Yeah. So I'm so glad that you brought that up because I have the honor of being able to sit back and listen to you guys do your interview. Yeah. And I get to just kind of watch and watch the dynamic and I thought it was so 
interesting that just like you said, she started the interview and, you know, everything was normal growing up and whatever else. And then when she brought up, you know, not only that it was, you know, sexual trauma, but violent sexual yeah. trauma. Yeah. You know, when you say the word violent, I mean, it really. Yeah. I don't know if other people do, but I get pictures. Yeah. I get pictures in my head, you know, right. whenever For people sure. are talking, yeah. right? Stories or yeah. I kind of get like videos no, and no, I do and too. stuff in my head, right? Yeah. So I think it's like a creative thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm just violent, you know, it, it's just, it's. It's unbelievable that that could happen to somebody, and it's unbelievable that that could happen to a child. And it makes so much sense why someone would want to just, like, numb out and not even want to go there. What did you think about the fact that she said she didn't have trauma in the beginning? Like, that her belief system was around, oh, my childhood was normal. I was in a little bit of shock. I was like, wait. That's a hundred percent not normal. <laughs> like that's, I don't know much, but I know this one thing. That's kind of a big event. Yeah, you know, that's a like big event. I can look back in my life and be like, "This happened. Yeah. This happened. This was awful." Right. right? Like you almost have like a timeline right. of like these right. things that have shifted and changed you. And so that was one of the things that I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like that would be a pertinent part of the story. But I, it took a little bit of. Sometimes it and, and I think this is the case with some interviews, right? It's it's not that people aren't being upfront. No, oh it's, no, it wasn't. It right. wasn't that at all. It's it's. She sat down with us and she's like, I, oh, and yeah, everything is on the table. No. I will talk about that. There was, is nothing that's like that. You you can ask me anything, right? Um, and so I think it was just that that tying it together in the narrative that that wasn't unusual. Almost, like, I don't know how to say it. Yeah. So what I took was that. Because everything around that seemed relatively normal, that the way that she categorized her childhood was as a normal childhood, Mm -hmm. oh, but except for this one thing, and that she had buried it so deeply for so long Mm -hmm. that even though she came out with it and talked about dealing with it much later on in life, that the narrative she had told herself for so long, which was that I had a normal childhood, I didn't have any trauma, was the one she led with. And then when we started talking about it, it came up because mm-hmm. because it's naturally a part of the conversation. But the actual, you know, tapes, the 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 narrative that goes on is I had this normal childhood and there was no trauma because that was the one that felt the best. And she talked about how until recently, she didn't realize that trauma could be anything, and the, the way that it was experienced. So she she finished with that. Such a good point. Such a good point. And this is another reason why substance use disorders or not, therapy is so important because support groups are also so important because it can really take the narratives that you have yeah. in your head and put it into the correct perspective, which then aligns your beliefs, which then leads to the correct healing. And yeah. it leads to your healing in the layers that you can handle. It was interesting. I was listening to Dax Shepard's podcast, who I just absolutely adore. He was interviewing Chelsea Handler, and she was talking about how for 40 years, whatever, 30 years, she did not go to therapy. She was like, I'm too smart for this. I have it all going on. I know what the problem is. I know what happened in my childhood. And that when she finally went and sat down with someone that she, you know, trusted and respected, she couldn't believe how helpful it was. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of really, really intelligent people 
mostly men that I've seen. Sorry, guys, but that's the truth. It's what I've encountered is I don't need that. I know what my issues are. Mm -hmm. You know, I know what they're going to tell me this, like, I know, I know, I know. And once you sit down and have someone replay, play back for you what you're saying or what your thoughts are and say, it seems like you believe this about your childhood and then like walk you through it piece by piece. It is wild what stories we tell ourselves and how powerful they are. We walk around every single day with various narratives going on about how things were, how things are, are, and how things are going to be. Mm -hmm. And whatever those are, they have a significant impact on our life and our self-esteem, on our families. And if we don't know what they are or, you know, consciously are not aware of them and directing them where we want them to be, this is what I want to believe about my life and this is what I want to believe about going forward. They have a life of their own and that's why people feel, I believe, that that's why many people feel victimized by their own life. So true. Can I bring up the finding or the leaving Neverland thing? Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So I oh we, god. Well, we both watched Leaving Neverland. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, on HBO. It, yeah. Two hours. Yeah. Two the different. Michael, Leaving Neverland is the Michael Jackson documentary. It was a two part series. Mm-hmm. Two part series, and then the follow up with Oprah yeah. afterwards, which was really helpful because she had yeah. a lot of experts on who I feel like put things in the right perspective. One of the biggest things that I took away from when I was listening, I don't remember the guy's name. I think it might have been James. He was talking about how he went through this horrific sexual molestation for years and years and years and years and years. Whole family, not his parents weren't involved, but they knew Michael Jackson. And, you know, so it's just, he's, he was just interweaved into his life. He grows up, gets married, has a few kids, and he's dealing with this depression. Like it basically looks like he's got this perfect life, right? He's a beautiful wife, super sweet. He's got gorgeous kids, healthy. He has a house. You know, he has a family that loves him. And he is dealing with such debilitating, crippling depression, he cannot function. Yeah, and, and substance use. He, and he substance throw, use, he that's kinda, right. He you know, throws that in. That's right. And he could not take control of his life. And he had zero answers as to why. Meanwhile, this awful abuse had happened for years and years and years. Stuff that he even said, I knew it wasn't right. I knew that it wasn't right. But he was just so just, it was this like, I don't know how else to describe it. Just like an unholy attachment like to yeah. Michael Jackson. I can completely see why. Yeah, absolutely. But he, he's, here he is later in life not being able to draw that line to why he is experiencing such crippling and debilitating depression and anxiety that is affecting every part of his life to the point where he's like, I just don't, I don't think I can live anymore. And it's just, that's a very extreme example, but I don't know that it is. I I think the only piece that's extreme about that, at least from my experience hearing that story and hearing many others like it for a long time is the, of, of who it was, yeah, the person. True. But the the story, particularly with sexual abuse with boys and men, yeah. there is this terror that they feel like, oh, I'm gay. Oh, people are going to judge me. It's not manly. There's all these different things that's pretty different around the conversation of sexual abuse with women. Mm. And I think that that plays into a, a big piece of what happened with those with those boys. And, you know, I, I don't know, 
one of the things that the on the Oprah special, they were talking about the trauma not being what you think it is yeah. and how confusing that is. And I felt that so deeply. It's something that I struggled with just so deeply that the trauma wasn't what I thought it was. And that's was so amazing to hear Oprah and these men talk about what that feels like because it's confusing. And I think there were so many different emotions and confusion and I want to be loved. I want to trust somebody. Someone cares about me. All the different mixture of feelings, violation, and all those things that go into it. And again, what, you know, I think his name was James, what he was doing was I can handle this. I can deal with this. I'm a man. Just buck up, push it down. And and you know when you bury feelings, you're burying them alive. Ooh, that's a really good analogy, and it's so true. And it will come back up again. Oh, oh yeah. Someone. Oh God. There's a really great Mexican proverb that says, "They buried us, but they didn't know we were seeds." Oh, I love that one. Yeah, and I it's. Really I mean, it's like that in a bad way. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, with them. I'm like all inspired. Yeah, and then yeah no. no, but I mean, it's 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 a perfect. You know, it's a, it's a it's an example. But what's so cool is that people are coming out and talking about it. These guys, you know, they came out, they had the conversations. I mean, I can't even imagine what it feels like to be. Well, and they ha- were attacked. Oh, I I can't even imagine what it feels like to be them ta- having these conversations and what you know whatever. I, it's not even yeah the p- politics of it. I don't care to comment on, but the. The emotions and the step for the courage, right? The yeah. cur- we talk about courage and the courage to say, this is what happened. This mm-hmm. is my truth. I understand why you don't want to believe that. And I'm going to talk about it. And that is so powerful. And it has not been done at the level that we're doing it with the regularity and the ability to be vulnerable is increasing for everyone, especially men. And I just, I love that. I think that's so awesome to have role models of people coming out and saying, this happened. And, you know, this was my experience. This was my trauma. And I'm here to say it out loud. And by taking something that's lived in the shadows and shining light on it, it just diminishes it. It just takes the pain away. It's so it's so crazy. Just letting, just putting it out in the sunshine. It's just a different experience. And I really hope that people continue to share their stories, being vulnerable, talking about whatever traumas they experienced. I don't, you know, it doesn't really matter whether or not your mom or your sister experienced the same thing as traumatic. If you did, you did, and you're going to live your life in that way. So talking about that and putting that out there, it's, it, it changes it changes lives because people are able to rewrite the constant talk that goes on in all of our heads. Absolutely. And just like you said, it's so healing for that person to be able to speak up and to not have to hide behind something. Because that, like when you had said, when we were talking about alcoholism, that secrets keep you sick, I think that can apply also to many different things that have happened or gone oh, it ha- on. Oh, it applies to everything. That you've stored, right? Yep. And I, I really see as we have these guests come in, we watch them sit down, tell these just 
crazy, vulnerable stories and then walk out just, I call them superheroes. Each one of you guys are superheroes to me because it takes that bravery and takes that courage to be able to stand up and know that this is, you know, we're in this wonderful booth, you know, all safe and warm, but this is going out there. And so it's just so courageous. And I know that, you know, that's, that's the whole point is to be able to like stand and speak and heal, but also inspire people to do the same. So thank you, Ash. And thank you to all of our superheroes that come in and and tell their stories. And we're just like, we're so, I say this every time, we're just so excited to be able to provide this platform for people to be able to speak and inspire. Yes, thank you. And I'm not very good at taking compliments, so I'm just going to look awkwardly to the side and say thank you. You're amazing. But yeah, it's it's really – I love knowing and seeing people's humanity. It's just something that I'm so attracted to, always have been. I want to know who people are mm-hmm. for real. I'm really bad at small talk. Says the podcast host. <laughs> I don't have small talk on this podcast. <laughs> well – No, I don't. No, you don't have small talk. But you're really good at sitting down with people and just just getting right to it. Okay. I just want to say this one thing before we close out about small talk and Ashley. Uh Uh-oh. My husband and I once went to a therapist years ago (laughs) because he had this group of friends that we were friends with. And every time we would go hang out with them, I would, you know, try to get to know one of the people. And it wasn't like my scene. It was his scene. And so like I would get on, you know, I was like, I'm on board. I'm going to go and like – get to know people. So I'd go and eventually somehow every time I'd end up in like the corner talking to somebody and they'd end the night in tears, like sharing their life with me, telling me, you know, sounds about right. We would basically be in a corner doing a therapy session every (laughs) single time. And my husband and boyfriend at the time was like, seriously, can you just learn (laughs) to have some small talk? Like just be a normal human who talks about the dang weather. <laughs> and I'm like, we live in California. There is no weather. New topic. So we've actually, I swear this happened. We went to a therapist and we had to discuss that like I was not capable of having small talk. And so everywhere, <laughs> like he, he, everywhere he took me, I would end up in like some deep conversation asking <laughs> someone if they're truly happy in their career or something ridiculous. They would divulge all this stuff and we would walk away and I would know so much more about this person. And I would tell him, I would say, oh my gosh, did you know that so-and-so grew up? And he's like, I've been friends with this person for 10 years. I had no idea of any of this stuff. (laughs) And so it's just so funny because I really, like me not being capable of small talk at one point in time in my life was really a disability. Well, and so for those of you guys who don't know, Ashley and I share an office and sometimes I'll come in and, and, you know, I'll look at her and be like, gosh, I'm just going through X, Y, and Z. And my joke is that I should pay her weekly for therapy sessions because she really does. It's just she can't help herself. It's like (laughs) she just is like, here, how how do you feel about that? But you don't even say that. It's like I know how do you feel about that. I know that that's a therapy thing, but I don't even know what you do. It's so natural. (laughs) And then we end like our day and I'm like, I should probably send you money for this because that was extremely helpful. Thank you. Oh, God. If only I could turn it around on myself. You know, it's like all of us, when you can help every other people and you get like, oh, my problem. I can't figure that out for the life of me. Yeah, but that's why we have community, right? Right. It's We're tot- all th- yeah. supposed to help each other. Totally. With our, yeah, totally. So. And I do too. I have the, you know, I go to other people who do the same thing to me and I love it because 
I, I don't have small I, – I really don't. My friends are like – come out and just tell me like, you're, you know, you're doing this, you're doing that. What's going on with you? Even my family, my family does too. Like (laughs) we don't have small talk in my family anymore either. Even my mom who was a big fan of the small talk for a long time. She's, she's now incapable of, it's amazing. The therapy life and the, the recovery world (laughs) totally (laughs) changed us into deep talkers. (laughs) Well, I think it's awesome. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for taking us deeper. These after the episodes have been helpful for myself and for a lot (laughs) of other people too, just to really further understand some of the topics and the difficult things that our guests have talked about, including yourself. And we just love and value your insight so much. And you guys get ready for another amazing guest next week. We're so excited. Oh my gosh. So good. So good. And If you have comments, questions, anything, please reach out to us. Please contact us. We want to create community with you, and we want to hear what you think about this stuff. And if you want us to change direction or you like what you're hearing, we want to open up dialogue. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. That being said, we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 